This is the XC Top 5 podcast for the second week of August 2020. We're recording this on August 12th, early in the morning, on Wednesday morning, and I'm Michael Doyle. I'm, as always, joined by Alex Sear, who I can see on video is sitting outside somewhere in rural Prince Edward Island, chatting with us, drinking a cup of coffee. How are you doing? How, is the, how are the ocean views, Alex? I'm doing well. I can actually see the Atlantic peeking behind the house, my grandparents' house across the street. It's very village here. Uh, it's peaceful. A lot of crows. It's peaceful. Incredible. And Andrew Kirkshank, you're in a sort of the the polar opposite experience right now, locked up in a loft attic space in uh, downtown Toronto. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm good. Yeah, I've got a, a beautiful view of a, a barbershop across the street, so not quite the Atlantic Ocean, but, but <laughs> something to look at. <laughs> you can study socially distanced haircuts yeah. all day long. Uh, so we've got we've got five interesting stories today, uh, including uh, one hell of a fast time trial half marathon, which we're going to talk about. Uh, kind of blows my mind that she was able to do this time on essentially on her own. And the Diamond League starting up again, so we're going to get some more action to talk about in the upcoming weeks. So we're going to chat a little bit about how that's going to play out. And uh, a couple of more stories, including our first story, the big story, the London Marathon is happening. However, there are many caveats to this. Uh, As we guessed last week on the podcast, uh, it is going to be an an elite-only race. We are going to get... Kenny versus Kipper, Bekele versus Kipchoge, the race to end all races, the race that should, in my estimation, finally decide who is the greatest marathoner of all time. Uh, Andrew, tell us a little bit about what this elite-only race is going to be all about. Yeah, so it's scheduled to take place on October 4th uh, around St. James Park, which is uh, it's a secure biosphere and it's, uh, it's going to go around a loop that's just over two kilometers long. So, so not too dissimilar from kind of the, the Kipchoge uh, sub two attempts. And it's going to only encompass only elite fields. So that's men, women, and wheelchair fields. Uh, and no spectators are going to be allowed on the course. But BBC Sport will broadcast the race. Uh, it's also going to be eligible for racers to qualify for the Olympics here. So there is a chance if people run fast, they could could still secure a spot for 2021. Uh, and there will be a virtual race still for participants. Um, they're allowed to do it on the day kind of across the world. Uh, and the actually the, the 2021 edition of the London Marathon, apparently, I guess because they're holding it so late, is going to be pushed from its its usual April date to August, October 3rd next year as well. So giving it a better chance of happening, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, that, that, that was an interesting little detail that popped up, that they're moving from April to uh, October next year, which, I mean, you you expect that they work really closely with city officials on this sort of thing, and that, that can only signal one thing, which is that we're probably not going to be seeing a lot of sports even in the spring of next year. Uh, Alex, Tell us a little bit about why this elite-only race is so special, so different, and such a big deal. So this we've been waiting for this for a while. It started in speculation, and the thing is, it's the face-off between the two big dogs of the running world right now, Elliot Kipchoge and Kennedy Sabikili. 
and obviously we've been following this rivalry, but I don't think it's ever been this close between these two these two runners. So Kipchoge obviously has the world record, the official world record of 201.39, ran that in Berlin, also ran sub two obviously last fall in Vienna. And Bikili, who is considered by a lot as the best distance runner in history for his, his prowess in cross country and the track, was not as electrifying in the marathon until last year, 201.41 in Berlin. So their PBs are literally separated by two seconds. And this is, well, this is not the first time they're racing in the marathon, but I think this is the first time um, that we see them racing with PBs that are that close. And I think this is going to decide who the greatest marathoner of all time is. And the reason it's important is because I don't think we have much time left for these two. Bikili's 38. He's pushing 40. Kipchoge's 35. Wink, wink. We think. We don't, we don't know. And <laughs> we, we wish. I don't know. It's, I think it's going to be an excellent, excellent race. Um, on the women's side, too, it's worth mentioning there's Bridget Cosguy, who's the world record holder. But I just don't think it's going to carry the spark because she's missing a rival. She's missing a joker to her Batman. By the way, it's becoming clear, I think, that Kipchoge's the good guy in this race and Kenanisa's the villain. And I don't really know how we got there. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a really good point, Alex. I, I feel the same way. It's just Kipchoge's so, like... <laughs> like lovable and, 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 and cuddly. Like he's, he's very <laughs> you call him cuddly, 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 a cuddly marathoner. Uh, he, <laughs> you know, he's, he's, you know, the Yoda, Yoda esque aphorisms, the Spartan lifestyle. Uh, I mean, obviously Nike's done a really good job at marketing, marketing him as such. And, and I've talked to the man before in person a couple of times and, he is indeed a very nice human being. Although I imagine Kennedy Bekele is also a really nice guy as well. He's Bekele is a little shyer though, right? Uh, Andrew, he's like a little bit more withdrawn to himself, um, and 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 I think shows his hand as being like more of a like a fierce, ambitious competitor. Not that Kipchoge is not those things. One other thing I think about this that's kind of interesting that we should keep an eye on is that. Uh, I, I actually think this should be the format, this style, this setup should be the format and the future of the, of how to make a marathon entertaining as an elite race. I mean, it may not happen because obviously uh, big time races need the huge participation level in order for them to happen in, in a big city. But I think that like breaking two first a few years ago and then the sub two attempt in Vienna or the successful sub two attempt in Vienna last year by Kipchoge, uh, these very controlled circuits uh, produce incredibly fast times, of course, a very controlled environment. So thus a very controlled experience and a very predictable experience for the athletes as well. And I, what I want to see guys is I want to see with Kipchoge and Bekele I want to see them go out at sub two hour pace on what they say will now be a legitimate world record worthy course. Unlike the sub two attempts that Kipchoge tried before or tried and succeeded at before. I want to see them go out at that, that murderous pace and see what, see what happens. See who, see who flinches, who drops first. So let's get down to prediction time. This is the early prediction. You will get a chance as we get closer to uh, to the race date to uh, modify your prediction if you decide to be a coward and chicken out on your prediction now. But, Andrew, between the two of them, let's go who wins and what the finishing time will be and what the spread of difference is between 
the, the two finishing times. In my, in my heart of hearts here, I, I can't see, I can't really see Kipchoge losing. Like he just, he just seems too dominant in the times he's run in the past. I, I'd kind of like to give Bekele a little more credit. I think, as you mentioned, he's a bit more of a, a competitor. He's, he's got that, maybe that drive, that killer instinct a little bit more, but Kipchoge looks so good. I, I think he, assuming he's in shape, I think I'd go with him. Uh, I, I could see him. I don't think he's going to break two, but I could see him running two hours somewhere mid two hours. And then Bekele maybe 201, somewhere in around there, 201 low kind of. That's my call. Alex, what is your bold prediction of the greatest marathon throwdown of all time? Who's winning? What's, uh, what's the time spread going to be? What's the finishing time going to be? So my prediction isn't really bold. And I got Kipchoge for the win. And you know what sucks is that I think if you put a hurdle or a barrier in the way of both of those guys, you're going to kind of downplay Bikili's ability to, to, to handle it and run against it. So, for example, they both dealt with COVID in the last couple of months. And I just think that it's going to hurt Bikili more than Kipchoge, not because Bikili's not a good competitor. I'm sure that he's been handling it really well. Sources out of Ethiopia saying that he's a total germaphobe. I don't oh. know how true that is. But, I mean, I'm sure he's been able to handle it well. But the thing is, Kipchoge is almost superhuman when it comes to staying the course, fighting obstacles, being mentally tough. And I think they're coming out of a period of training that was like none other. And I just think not only is Kipchoge perhaps the better marathoner, dare I say, he's probably also better at dealing with problems, barriers, and obstacles. So I think Kipchoge is going to win. I do think that COVID is going to have played a role on them just because the training has been different. And I don't think the times are going to be that impressive. I say, well, that impressive. I'll say Kipchoge goes 203-10. That's, that's not impressive for them. And Kananisa goes 204-16. I think Kipchoge is going to make the break at around 32K. And after that, it'll be... It, it'll yeah it's going to be about a minute difference between the two so you both have about a minute difference uh yeah. you both have them uh in the same the same order finishing order i think that uh i think first of all that although covid will have an effect on on both of them in terms of the, the training regimen in terms of like, kipchoge loves to train with that big group uh and he's not been able to train with the big group for a big chunk of time now I imagine they're probably bubbling together again now for a while. So that will definitely help. And we've got to keep in mind that there's still a couple of months before this race goes down. Right. So there's still that, like that time for them to peak is, is, has yet to come in their training. Uh, I, I think that actually it'll be really interesting to see if the St. James park course is indeed fast. It's only a two kilometer loop. And there are, we, we kind of mapped it out on Google maps. Like we, we did a guesstimate of what the, um, what the course is going to look like. There's a couple of fairly sharp turns, which will definitely slow them down a little bit, but ultimately it should be a pretty fast course, like super flat, uh, very controlled. And I think that the bubble situation, if they have the athletes show up, you know, for a week or two weeks beforehand in order to monitor everybody, monitor their teams, keep everybody safe, safe and healthy. I think that's actually going to play really hugely in favor uh, of the athletes because they don't usually get that much run up and that much time in one place to get comfortable, to get acclimatized, to get used to the time zone, even though there's not a huge shift between East Africa and, and, and the UK. 
So I think that actually will help with performance and it will mm-hmm. get, it'll get, it'll get Kennedy Bekele nice and comfortable so that he f- trusts the environment and his germaphobe tendencies don't kick in and freak <laughs> him out on race day. Uh, I want to, I want to pick Bekele because you look at his, I mean, like his Wikipedia read is just so jaw dropping. You forget that he's won so much and he has won for like nearly 20 years. He's been dominant uh, and he's won at every level and even proven it in the marathon as well with the second fastest time ever. You feel like it was just like a, like a mental mistake that he didn't break the world record last year in Berlin. Uh, Cause he's only a couple of seconds off. But I'm picking, I'm picking Kipchoge. You, you don't bet against Elliot Kipchoge. And I'm gonna go, Andrew. You kind of stole my move. I was gonna do like a, like around a two, a two hours thirty seconds. Uh, but I'm gonna, I'll push it a little bit faster. I'm gonna say he, he runs even closer to what his first breaking two time was, which is, you know, I'm gonna say two hours seventeen seconds. It's just gonna be tantalizingly close, but legitimately very far away from breaking two hours in a legitimate course. And I'm going to put Bekele, uh, a disappointing under air quotes, two Oh two, two Oh two Oh two. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to fade a little bit in the last five K and not be able to, uh, to hammer at home, but still two Oh two. I mean, even a few years ago, guys, two Oh two would have been such an exciting thing to talk about. It's kind of, we're, we're spoiled with, uh, with performance riches. All right, uh, and until that gets closer to that day, well, I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. On to the next topic. Topic number two, we're getting some more big-time organized racing back in our lives. Uh, in particular, the, the Diamond League circuit is firing up again. The Diamond League circuit is the most important series of track and field meets around the world every year. Uh, the crown jewel of track and field overseen by World Athletics. Uh, the races take place primarily in Europe, but there is also a race in, at the Prefontaine Classic in Eugene, Oregon. And there are races in, in Asia as well. Uh, the first meet we're getting is on August 14th, so in just a couple of days, the Monaco Diamond League race. Uh, Alex, tell us a little bit about what to expect in Monaco. So this one is the meeting... Hercules, they call it Monaco, and it's going to be the first competitive event on the Diamond League circuit. So we've had other exhibition meets. I think we've had two virtual meets, um, but this is going to be the first in-person meet. And re- for a distance running fan, there's no better place than Monaco. Um, it's it's um, it's kind of a distance carnival because it has a lot of longer races and it tends to bring out the best in athletes in recent years. Now, obviously, usually this is perhaps the sixth or seventh uh, meet on the calendar. And this year, athletes are perhaps a bit um, less seasoned, but perhaps a bit more fresh. So hopefully we can see some good performances. And last year, um, that's where Sifan Hassan ran the mile world record in 412. Uh, Nigel Amos in the 800 went 141. Five women dipped under two minutes in the 800. Um, Jakob Ingebrigtsen, who was 18, went 3.30. So, yeah, usually it's it's filled with good performances. And at this point, I think even though it's one of the first meets of the season, it's just late enough to get the COVID jitters out. Um, So I think track fans should be excited. It's going to be the most normal-looking thing we've seen so far. The COVID jitters. It's going to be like a... a a new sports term that we're going to hear over and over again in the coming weeks and months. Uh, Andrew, tell us a little bit about this field. Uh, Alex has spoken about 
the incredible performances we've seen in Monaco in the past uh, and the, you know, the bright stars that have shown up and, and proven themselves in this race. Uh, what are we, what are we in for this week? People look like they're, they're hungry this year. Um, I obviously uh, people haven't just said screw it to training during COVID and, and put on some extra weight. Like there, there are some big time athletes showing up for this thing and, and you expect it to be fast. Uh, Safan Hassan, is returning. She's going to be racing the 5,000 meters here. So that should, should be a fast race. I know she's got a couple uh, fast competitors to go head to head with. Uh, the men's 1500 meter is looking pretty stacked. You got the Ingebrigtsen brothers, uh, Jakob and Philip, they're facing off against uh, Timothy Chariot. And then you've got 10,000 meter world champion, Joshua Cheptegei. He's racing the 5,000. So that's going to be quick. Uh, and Brits, Laura Mir and Gemma Riki are taking on the, the 1,000, so kind of an off distance. That'd be kind of cool to see how fast they can go. Um, and then one that's un unfortunate that was supposed to happen is you have Conceslus Kipruto, uh, who's the Olympic and World Steeplechase champion. He was, he was actually planning on making an attempt at the Steeplechase world record here, but he just tested positive for COVID. So oh, no. is out, Thanks. unfortunately. So that would have been a cool race to watch too, especially if he, he got the world record. So a lot of a lot of big names. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see because I know in, in some of the other races that have been going on so far, there's been athletes who've just kind of been jogging in some of these races in order to get their their contracts fulfilled. So I, I'd be interested to see what happens here. I I don't think anyone would do that here. I assume all the races will be fast, but we'll see see what happens. Uh, Alex, to that, speaking about COVID uh, and it's just. A Another example of how imperiled all of these events are, as excited as we are that they're happening, they're also still incredibly risky. I mean, a, a, a top-tier athlete like Kipruto testing positive for COVID, uh, you know, in the, in the days leading up to racing and attempting a world record uh, is, is real cause for concern. Um, what's, your, what's your thinking on moving forward with, the Diamond League and other large meets, given the fact that this this virus is not under control? Well, if you look at the Diamond League website, what's interesting is they've listed the events that have been canceled, but they're also keeping six more events on their schedule. They're going to Sweden, they're going to Italy, they're going to China, a few places. And you got to wonder if that's going to be a sustainable model. You know, each country is kind of dealing with different guidelines and a different level of outbreak right now. Um, I'd be interested to see what would happen if if uh, the Diamond League or World Athletics would try to um, prepare some or make some sort of bubble like we've seen in other major sports. See, I've been watching NHL hockey. It's all happening in Toronto and Edmonton. All the players are there. They're hanging out at one rink. There are no fans. There's one game after another. Yesterday, one game went to five overtime. So the, the team that was playing next had to wait until the next day. So it has its own challenges. But, you know, you see these big, big leagues adapting in a different way just to try to shield the players of the virus. Obviously, these players are, are getting tested before getting into the bubble. Um, we're seeing this in amateur leagues as well. And I'm kind of wondering why track didn't go for a model like that. What do you think? I mean, my, my thoughts are that I think, is, first of all, the, the Diamond League is essentially, it's not a organized league as it sounds. It's essentially several disparate uh, races that ex existed pr previously nationally. 
uh, and have their own organization groups, their own committees, uh, and are driven for their own by their own motivations when it comes to to track and field. They're either like like with Monaco, they're at very distance focused, or uh, other events are are more field focused or more sprints focused. Uh, and they're just they just came in under this this league banner in the last number of years, mainly mainly as a, a marketing strategy more than anything. So I don't think. World Athletics, which is kind of, I guess, the de facto, I mean, they are the global association for running. They're a pretty weak body in the grand scheme of things. They're, I think they can't really bring together the world's best athletes and bubble them and A, afford it, and B, uh, convince hundreds of different athletes to commit to one location, like, say, Monaco, which is actually where World Athletics is based, and to bubble there and... and uh, and compete for a few months. It's too bad. And I'm sure maybe in retrospect, there's going to be a lot of like hindsight is 2020 conversations, particularly in the world of sports. When we look back at, at this uh, period in in time. And I I think maybe it was a missed opportunity. I think there were quite a few missed opportunities with, with running in particular. I I think there could have been uh, one off incredible races a la you know not to the degree of Kipchoge and and Bekele running a marathon head to head but on the track races similar to that we saw a few things here and there dribs and drabs of performances but I think it, there could have been so much more and there could have been a real opportunity to like showcase distance running when there were no other sport uh, sports going on and we were like desperate to watch sports uh so yeah some it seems like a missed opportunity uh Maybe it could still happen. They could still pivot and put a few of these races in one place in Europe over the next few months if they feel like it's not safe to move them around. I don't know. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of agree. I, I guess part of the appeal, too, is that it is in a, a different spot each time. It gives it some kind of um, international flavor that, that they're in a, a new kind of European city or Asian city each time, and it's a exciting because of that and you have these massive crowds so uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of what it's like without a without a, a kind of fan base without uh spectators in the the stands i know with um i think it's the same with all the the kind of other major sports like like i know with the nba and stuff they're piping in the the sounds of the spectators through the tv so it doesn't sound just empty and quiet and you just hear the, the sound of the ball bouncing but um which, which does help. I think it does make it feel a little bit more like a, a real game. So uh, it's, yeah, but whether they could have done the bubble mode and, and just done it in one place, I, I don't know. Cause then you kind of have to commit to the same athletes in every single race. That's the one problem, I guess. And part of the other thing with the diamond league is you, you get changed it up every once in a while, you get a, a guy who wasn't running in one race coming in and racing against someone. So we'll see what happens. We shall see. Uh, All right, on to topic number three. Third topic, the Runner's World headline sums it up nicely. Sarah Hall runs impressive half marathon PR without the hoopla. Andrew, uh, describe to us why we're talking about this personal best by American distance runner Sarah Hall um, and what the... My, the absence of hoopla uh, means in this context. <laughs> yeah, Hall ran fast 
she ran uh, one hour, eight minutes and 18 seconds for the half marathon. So it's so a really impressive time. Uh, it's the sixth fastest U.S. half marathon ever. Um, and she ran it in Oregon, uh, which was kind of strange considering Hall's from, she's from Flagstaff, Arizona. And that's where she lives with her husband, who uh, is former Olympic marathoner turned weightlifter, Ryan Hall. <laughs> yeah. um, check out his, his Instagram pictures. Uh, but they stuff. traveled to, yeah, to Eugene, Oregon to, to compete in this socially distanced half marathon along the shore of Dorena Lake. And it was organized by the people who put on the Eugene Marathon, who I believe the organizer is a, a friend of the Halls, actually. Maybe went to Stanford with them, I think. Uh, but the actual race started at 5.52 a.m. just as the sun was rising because they wanted to limit the number of spectators and, and people they'd encounter along the way. And there were only five people in the race. And two of those people were Hall's daughters, uh, Hannah, who's 20, who actually both of the daughters managed to run pretty impressive times. Uh, Hannah ran uh, an hour 20 and Mia, who's 16, ran an hour 23, which is not bad for teenage girls. And then two were pacers. There's Eric Finnan and Jared Carson, who were pacing Hall through uh, to the race. So, so she ran fast for, for a race that was just essentially organized by her and her friends. And, and there was nothing, there's nothing riding on it. She doesn't really get anything from it. She doesn't suddenly get to go to the Olympics now because she ran this, but, but it was, it was fast. Good for her. Yeah. Alex, this is kind of like, like in music. Now we've got like the, the Taylor Swift album drop the day we find out about it, the day it it's coming out. Uh, this is like racing is for elite athletes is sort of the same thing now where it's like, there was like a, an Instagram post, you know, the day before the day, or, or I think it was the day before, cause it happened really early in the morning. Uh, this sort of innocuous Instagram post that I think had a picture of Ryan Hall and, 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 and one of the organizers having a conversation in Eugene. And, and then she's announcing that she's doing this the following morning. Um, what, so what does this all mean, uh, Alex? What is uh, what does this mean for Hall, and uh, like, what was the purpose of this? Do you think? Well, first, let's say let's not forget about the Nickelback album drop that I think they announced earlier this week, and it's <laughs> dropping at the end of this week. I think is worth mentioning. It's just a big red photo with Nickelback on it. But are you are you sure? Happen. Are you sure it's worth mentioning? Are you sure? <laughs> I'll let you know on Friday oh, okay. when it comes okay. out. I'm not yet. I'll let you know. Um, <laughs> Nickelback, my God. Okay. I'm still kicking. No, but it's what it means. I feel bad for Sarah Hall a little bit because obviously this is a, a huge run for her. She's a 222 marathoner and she ran that recently. She's obviously in the best shape of her life and she just couldn't make it happen on the day of the trials. And that happens to the best of us. So, you know, the hat again shows that she's in great shape and now we're getting into this place where she's probably going to wait, have to wait until the next Olympic cycle to, to show what she can do. But here's the thing. Hall's 37. And if we learned anything in the last years, it's, it's that a lot of marathoners peak later than people used to think. You know, well, again, bring it to Kipchoge and Bikili, they're pushing 40 or perhaps pushing 45. And then you have, you have in Canada, even Melinda Elmore ran her best times at around 40 years old. So it's uh, there is still time for Hall, but it's just going to be waiting. And you, you know, you mentioned this, Michael, too. In COVID times, 
you'll have some runners going on in one direction and some runners going in another direction. And if you're one of those types of people who are self-motivated and perhaps tired of spotting your husband on the bench press in the basement, you're going to be going out and doing some runs. So she's obviously fit. I just hope that she gets to show it sometime when it's not just a time trial. Yeah, you wonder, I mean, she's she's somebody who's been a, a serial racer in the last few years. She's uh, done multiple marathons, even in a season, which is unheard of for a runner of her level and, and, and produced some incredible results. I mean, she ran her, her fastest marathon last year in Berlin at 222 amidst a cluster of, of very intense racing that I think many, many coaches and elite level athletes would look at that and say that that was uh, misguided, but she got great results from it. I do wonder if maybe the, it's unfortunate that her, she's not able to channel her timing into a, uh, a, an on-demand performance like the uh, Olympic trials. And, you know, that's important to be able to deliver that. But that said, you can't knock her for running an incredible time. If this, I mean, this, if this were at a big half marathon event, like the New York half or Houston, uh, this would be jaw dropping on its own. But the fact that she was able to knock this off in basically competing against in her own mind, uh, alone out on on the roads in, in Eugene Oregon very early one morning uh, is extraordinary it's that's a very hard thing to pull off an incredible amount of focus uh, I hope for her sake that she gets an opportunity to run an elite level event even if it's like a an, uh, a London in the fall where it's a a closed elite event that she gets that opportunity that would be a cool fit for her actually um, but uh, we'll see it's again in, in, in these COVID times, who knows what's going to happen with races in the next six months to a year. But impressive time by Sarah Hall. Fourth topic. We talked about this. We teased this a little bit last week in the pod. On Athletics Club has uh, announced their full roster. On running, of course, is the unusual Swiss running brand and they decided to start an elite group out in Boulder, Colorado. It's a, a bold move, an impressive move. Uh, they've uh, slotted coach Dathan Ritzenhine, former Olympian, top level distance runner from the U.S. to coach the group. Uh, Alex, tell us a little bit about the full roster, which we now have a uh, we ha- we now have the names. Tell us a little bit about who's on who's in the on athletics club. Yeah, this is an impressive roster. You know, when when you when you publicize only one uh, athlete, you fear that perhaps is the only good athlete or top athlete out of the eight. But no, this is pretty strong all around. So four women and four men. Out of those people, you have six NCAA champions. Um, the women's side is led by NCAA uh, current cross-country runner-up, so 2019, and indoor 5K champion Alicia Monson coming out of Wisconsin. So she's got a 1531 5K. Um, another one that people will recognize is Leah Fallon. She used to go by O'Connor, so you may know her as Leah O'Connor. Uh, the 2014, so now six years ago, now NCAA steeple champion and 2015 NCAA mile champion now she is supremely talented big pickup if she can stay healthy that's the thing with her see she hasn't competed at the usa outdoor champ since 2016 uh, but still she's she's run a 433 mile i think it was earlier this year um which is her best in years so hopefully she's over the the injury hump um 
there's also Emily Oren, who cleaned up in D2. So nine titles in D2 out of Hillsdale. Um, and she's got a 15.37 5K on her resume. And then Alicia Konacek, she's from Poland, 25, um, nine-time D2 champ as well at Western State. So, um, and similar PB, so 4.21 in the 15. So there's four women. I like the group together because you have a lot of steeple and 5K flair. Uh, their PBs tend to overlap, but the backgrounds are different. You know, Monson is 23, fresh out of high school, and the other three women are both three or four years older, so they have a bit more experience. So the way I'm seeing it is it seems like the group is kind of designed to get Monson into a group of very uh, experienced athletes who can kind of help show her the ropes. She's just out of college. So to me, it kind of looks like they're designing the group around her. Um, but yeah, four top athletes to train together. Uh, the men's side is a bit younger in general. Most of them are just right out of college, uh, obviously led by the Klecker that we said last week, NCAA cross country runner up. Um, and the three others, uh, they went a bit faster than I thought. I thought they would kind of go 5K up just looking at Klecker's credentials, but uh, they have a bit of a 1500 meter to mile flare. So um, they're, they're, uh, they're also adding Oliver Hoare of Wisconsin, who was the NCAA uh, 1500 meter champ in 2018. So this is a 337 guy, 748 in the 3K. They got Jordy Beamish, almost seems like they poached him from uh, NAZ Elite. So Northern Arizona guy, uh, mild champ in 2019 indoor. And uh, yeah, I was sure this guy was going to stay in Arizona, but this is a 338, 1331 runner. Um, and about the same age as Horace. So again, straight out of college. Carlos Villarreal, whose best finish was fourth at the NCAAs uh, in the mile in 2019. He was uh, competing for Arizona. And this is a quick guy, 146, 337, 356 miles. So a lot of these runners are hovering right around the sub 340 mark. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's exciting. I'm excited to see how they all train together. Um, the guys are all 23, so a lot of years ahead of them. Yeah, Andrew, the this is what surprised me a little bit about this, although I guess with Klecker being the headliner last week, it's maybe they showed their hand a little bit, but that it's a very much a early development group in the grand scheme of things career-wise. No real seasoned uh, top-level vets in the group, uh, a little bit more so on the women's side than the men's side, but for the most part, we're looking at kind of early-ish development for a professional athlete. Uh, what do you find interesting about this this particular team and what on what on running is doing out in Boulder with the, with this this uh, this setup? I I agree with you. I think uh, calling them kind of a development team is is the best way to do it. Uh, when you look at their credentials, I think maybe only one of them actually has any experience on on at a major event. I think only one of them maybe has run at the World Championships. It's not like you have a bunch of, of former Olympians coming in. They're they're mainly they're NCAA runners, and they were very good in the NCAA, and they have fantastic times. But a lot of them don't have necessarily like Olympic qualifying times yet, so they've still got some work to do there, uh, which is interesting because On has signed more athletes this year than any other company, uh, like any yeah. other group, which is. Uh, which is interesting because they, when you compare them to the sporting giants like Nike and Adidas and those guys, they're, they're relatively small. They're a very small company in comparison. 
So it seems like a bit of a risky time to launch this elite group. I mean, with the pandemic going on, there aren't that many races happening. It's questionable whether these guys could get into like a, a diamond league, for instance. So are they going to get that much racing in, uh, especially with the Olympics only a year away? Are they going to be have time to kind of prepare for this and, and get used to the racing and, and competing and get their times down? It's hard to say, uh, especially considering um, considering the, the time to launch it is weird when you think on would be doing this as a, as a bit of a marketing campaign. You have to assume they're not doing this out of the goodness of their heart, right? They kind of want to get the push the brand out there. And a, a good way to do that is by starting an elite group and having these athletes wear their, their brand and their clothing. But if none of these guys or guys or girls are racing, then is anyone going to see their brand? Is, is there going to be any marketing happening? Although, I, I mean, as I'm saying this here, we've, we've spent two weeks in a row talking about them. So, so maybe in a weird way, it is kind of working. Yeah. Good point. And it, it, um, I want, but I guess my big question mark is, will we ever talk about them again after this? And will this be a thing where this is an organ, this is a club we've seen this with, with, uh, brand sponsored clubs in the past over the last 10, 20 years where they pop up particularly when it's a, a newer brand or a brand that's jumping headfirst into running with a lot of enthusiasm as they pop up, they, they sponsor the club for a couple of years. It doesn't get them the traction they were hoping to get after like a big initial marketing and, and PR flourish along these lines. And then, you know, quietly you, you're like, whatever happened to that, whatever happened to the on athletic club, you know, we'll be saying this and like, you know, the, the, in between the Olympic years and the next few years, we'll be like in 2023, we'll be like, what, what happened with, uh, Oh, I see that clackers running with whomever. Now, I guess that that on thing fell apart. Um, maybe that won't be the case. Maybe this will be a group that will produce some, you know, this will be like the next Bowerman type scenario where there's a lot of excitement and energy and great performances from these athletes. Um, and certainly the thing that they're going to be focused on is content. I can only imagine that, you know, with a splashy PR move along these lines, we're going to see a lot of, there's going to be a lot of Instagram content uh, around this group over the next year or so, particularly going into the Olympics next year. Uh, but yeah, this makes me think a little bit of um, what Reebok did in the last couple of years with Justin Knight and building a building a group around uh, Knight and Martin Hayer and people like that, uh, that were young supreme talents, American talents that basically are being positioned to market a brand to the American, to an American market. Uh, and, you know, I, I think for Reebok, it's been, I'd say mixed results. There's been some attention. Justin Knight's a really affable guy, a really interesting guy that I think it's done well for them marketing wise and giving them a little bit more street cred that they actually are a legit running brand. Say that about Flanagan as well. Uh, yeah, exactly. They brought Ben Ben Flanagan into that group as well. So, and again, great for social media content, right? Great for you know documenting their workouts and their their races and like their approach and and their personalities as well, which is something that's exciting and something that wasn't being done for a long time, but was being done in other sports, which is playing up the lifestyle and personalities of these athletes. So. We'll see. Uh, what maybe we'll do like a little quick prediction. What do you think is going to happen with this group? Are they going to actually produce like a, a an American 
outdoor champion and an an Olympian in 2024 or are we, or even 2021? Um, or, or is this going to be, is this going to be something that kind of slowly dissolves quietly over the next few years? What do you think, Andrew? Uh, I think producing someone worthwhile by 2021 would be, would be pushing it. I I could see these guys, I could see these guys getting faster. Certainly you've got a a whole bunch of people. uh, I mean, a whole bunch of women in around the same time, 5k wise, and you've got a whole bunch of guys in around the same time, 1500 meter wise. So I could certainly see them getting, getting faster and, and, making a little bit of noise, but I, I'm kind of with you. It, it just doesn't seem like there's a, a standout star enough that's going to really kind of propel this group into the, the Bowerman status. I don't think you're going to have any kind of Mohammeds or, or that type of thing, unfortunately. Alex, are they going to deliver a an Olympic finalist in the five or 10 K or even the 1500 meters. They've got some, some good depth uh, on the speed side and the men's side. Are you, we going to see any of that in the next four years? I think that, I think so. I think the goal that they stated is to put people on Olympic teams and just looking at the age of these athletes, I, I think it would be a shame to see them dissolve between Olympic cycles, because I think a, a good goal for them would be 2024. You know, you have Monson who's just coming out of college. And she has all these athletes to train with who have been, you know, athletes at 27, at 28, who can kind of guide her through her next four years. And as for the men, they're almost carbon copies of each other. You'd think perhaps one or two of them kind of, you know, hits their stride and it works for them. Hopefully it works for all of them. But I think the goal is to see them in 2024. I don't think, um, I don't think we can compare them to Bowerman. What Bowerman has is straight up the best athletes in the world. These are more like a 10 man elite type group where they're going to they're going to make money with their content they're going to create a fan base hopefully if they're if their athletes are personable and their content creation is good enough and that'll support them them for about four years maybe more hopefully more and get a few of them on the olympic team so yeah my my prediction is that you'll have at least one of them in 2024 carlos villarreal is interesting because he's so quick now if he can mold himself to you know, keep that speed and move up to the 15 and perhaps even the 5K, you could have something pretty electric, but he's going to be interesting to follow. Well, something to keep our eye on and uh, on running have, have won, they've won for now because they just had us talking for over 12 minutes about a group that has yet to even <laughs> perform together. Uh, I'm, the I'm next, buying a collector t-shirt. <laughs> on to the next topic. Final topic for this week. Uh, this is a, I guess it's a Canadian focused story, but I think that it has farther reaching implications than that. And it speaks to the direction that hopefully our sport is moving towards uh, full stop. And that is that uh, in the last year in Canada, three of Canada's most prominent coaches and leaders uh, Dave Scott Thomas at the University of Guelph and Speed River Track Club, uh, Andy McInnes and Ken Porter, who are both at the Ottawa Lions, which is the largest track club in Canada and the most prominent track club in Canada for a number of years. They were, they've all been banned for life for a variety of, uh, uh, of abuses uh, and abuses of power and abuses of athletes and abusive athletes. And so this is... 
Athletics Canada, in order to address this, has uh, started rolling out various policies. And one important policy is uh, what they're calling the whistleblower policy, which, I mean, Andrew, I can't believe that this didn't exist before, but apparently it didn't. Um, as you know, I'm quite critical of all of this, and we've been quite involved in this conversation and this reporting over the last year or so as well. Uh, Andrew, explain to us a little bit about what Athletics Canada's whistleblower policy entails. I was going to say the same thing, actually. I think the most the most shocking thing about this policy is that it wasn't in place before. It's, it's kind of insane, actually. Um, but but yeah, it's it's a new policy that Athletics Canada is introducing in order to protect athletes from inappropriate behavior and encourage whistleblowers to come forward. So essentially what this, this whistleblower policy is, is it allows anyone who witnesses a wrongdoing to report it, whereas previously all complaints had to come from a victim. Which, which seems kind of crazy. Um, there's, a, there's a couple other things they're adding in there to try and support this. They're advocating more for the rule of two, which I guess was a policy that was, was already in place, and they're just trying to reinforce that. Um, I mean, this seems like a, a pretty self-evident one when you're a coach, but it, it means no athlete should be alone with the coach, obviously. You know, don't be sharing a hotel room with your athlete, that kind of thing, or, or even just being alone at the, the track and is iffy. Um, I, on top of that, Athletics Canada is planning on hosting quarterly town hall meetings between the athletes and the organization. So they're hoping to get feedback on this, uh, find out a little bit more about, about what's going on. Hopefully they'll, they'll be a little bit more open to receiving uh, criticism and, and, people coming forward uh, and taking it a little bit more seriously so that we don't have incidents like what happened going on for years. I think that's the scariest part is, is some of these incidents, they happened for years and they repeated over and over again and, and nothing was done about it. No one listened. So hopefully this, this gets the ball rolling in the, the right direction. Uh, Alex, what are your thoughts on this policy? I know it's a, it's a pretty complex one. You're somebody who, um, who has competed at a very high level? You competed at a very uh, a a a celebrated program in Canada and the university level at the University of Windsor, uh, and had a coach a coach that you were extremely close with. Uh, and so, what's your thoughts on the details of this policy? Uh, both both good and you know aspects that you feel you you feel comfortable being critical with. Yeah, well, as I read the article, it was a CBC article that I read. Um, I found myself nodding, thinking this is good, this is good, right until the end. And then I kind of got puzzled. So, well, obviously, I think it's good that, that you know, more than just victims can issue a complaint. Absolutely, that's needing, needed. I think uh, frequent meetings, town hall, just the idea that those exist could be a reminder for people to speak up as well and maybe be a deterrent to transgress in the future. So I think it's generally good. But the one thing I, I take issue with is, is, and I'll read the guideline here. Um, co it says coaches should avoid initiating physical contact and becoming overly involved with athletes' personal lives. That's good. Here's where it gets slippery. And again, I'll read. Coaches are also to avoid one-on-one -on -one interactions with athletes and sending personal text messages. And that's whatever that means, you know. Coaches who don't follow the guidelines could face penalties up to a lifetime ban. And here I fear that we're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. 
a lot of good coaching, I think, comes from getting to know an athlete, not as a number, but as a person. Like, isn't that the problem that we have in the NCAA, that there, there's, there's no personal communication between coach and athlete? I think becoming strict on how a coach can communicate with an athlete might discourage some good coaching. And worse, maybe eliminate well-meaning coaches who inadvertently break the rule by texting athletes. So, sure, I'll go into my story a little bit. I competed at Windsor for what doesn't feel like very long. And most of the time there, I dealt with injuries and I had one really good season kind of wedged in the middle of a bunch of problems. And the, the most important person to get me through that was my coach, Gary Malloy out there. And, you know, we texted a lot. We went to Detroit Red Wings games together and I'm grateful that I had that opportunity. So, like I said, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to regulate because you see that when, when we permit an abuse of power, bad things will happen. But at the same time, there's a lot of good coaching that can come out of the opportunity and the ability uh, of a coach to get to know an athlete on a personal level. So um, I'm, I'm interested to see how this progresses. I'm kind of afraid for the good coaches out there and the well-meaning coaches. And I'm also kind of afraid for athletes who may need support and may need to have a good relationship with the coach and someone who can kind of help them out with their day-to-day, not just let them know how many 400s they're going to run. So I think we're going to have to wait and see on this one, but I'm kind of fearful. Yeah, I I hear you. Uh, and I think that it's a, a classic example of the the few ruining it for the many. Um, and in this mm. case, it's a few really terrible coaches and uh, and I, I hate to say it, but in the reporting that the reporting that we did on, on Guelph and Dave Scott Thomas and some of the other reporting that I'm looking, been looking at subsequently uh, continuing on from that, uh, you know, it's, there are quite a few coaches that have crossed lines over the years uh, and some that are still active today. And so I don't really know how you, I think that it, I think unfortunately Alex uh, really exceptional, personable, incredibly decent human beings that volunteered their time in many cases to be coaches are going to be punished by this because there's just no other way. And I think that the, the style and attitude uh, and structure of coaching is going to have to change, even if that means it's going to to be detrimental to many athletes and, and a, a lesser experience for them, a less interpersonal experience for them, a less of a mentoring experience for them over the year, next, the coming years. But I think it, it has to happen, unfortunately, um, just based on what, what we've, what we've seen and heard. Uh, I also think that while this whistleblower policy is essential and as Andrew mentioned is a kind of appalling that it didn't previously exist and the onus was totally put on the victim for many the last number of years to report i i do still think that there's a huge element of this that is still broken which is the institutional element it's all well and good for athletics canada and universities and other large powerful institutions to say you know we're doing the we're doing all these positive things and creating these these programs and these policies uh, to empower the athlete and and to empower the community of athletes to to uh, to stand up and say something and to, to not feel uh, that they're going to be punished for it. But the bottom line is is they're, they're still going to face punishment uh, from an institutional level because as we've seen time and time again, uh, people report on these coaches 
and they try to stick their hand up and say something is wrong here. And the institutions are the ones that are that are ignoring them or worse or burying this uh, in order to benefit from the success of the coach. So I think there needs to be a much bigger conversation here about uh, what is motivating and driving uh, athletes, coaches, and institutions. And I think we need to have a huge reassessment of like what the role of sport, what the role of sport in society is and how it is that we fund sport and motivate institutions and motivate coaches and athletes. Um, And it's a different conversation for a different day. Uh, But I feel that like this is like just so the tip of the iceberg. I mean, it's good that Athletics Canada have finally done this. I'm a little disgusted that <laughs> that it's taken until, you know, mid-2020 for them to institute this policy. But uh, I guess it's a good step forward. We'll leave it at that for today. And I'm sure we'll be revisiting this topic in the future. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure to subscribe to uh, the newsletter and the podcast, which is the dxc.substack.com and you can follow us on social media at dxcorg. Uh, Alex, Alex is running a big 5k. You're doing a big 5k time trial uh, this Friday, if I'm not mistaken. You've been documenting it, Alex. Uh, I've I've been watching your progress on YouTube. The videos are really quite entertaining and charming. Um, Don't. What's the what's the what's the goal on Friday? Well, thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, the goal is um, I'm gonna try to run around the fifteen fifteen to fifteen twenty mark. So yeah, the whole thing of the YouTube Pretty channel good. is getting healthy again, getting the mileage up a little bit. Some people bake bread during COVID. Some people watch. Some people eat chips. I started a YouTube channel. So yeah, we've been documenting training, and I now have a couple friends around here who who are running and and in Nova Scotia as well, New Brunswick. And now we have the Atlantic bubble and where our, um, our COVID uh, guidelines have gotten a bit looser. The race is still going to be a little bit wacky with COVID rules, but um, yeah, we're, we're good enough that we can do a little time trials with small heats. So we'll get a 5k going. It's based on what I can see. It's like this kind of idyllic dream. You've got, you know, this weird endless summer where you can just focus on training and there's no excuses and you've, and you've got back into fitness again. And now you're running this, uh, this magical, uh, 5k on the track in the middle of essentially in the middle of nowhere. Middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's been, it's been a really fun summer. I can't, I can't complain. Just, just having the time to do it and having the health to do it. And, uh, I kind of don't want to leave now. It's oh, the, boy go back to Toronto and try to figure it out on the concrete roads. <laughs> oh, you poor souls come and join yeah, us. Much. Uh, how can we, how can we watch uh, these YouTube videos? What, what's your YouTube channel? Yeah. Well, thanks for the plug. Um, it's uh, Alex here. Just my name, A-L-E-X-C-Y-R. You look it into YouTube and uh, yeah, I usually post one video a week. A lot of it's training documentation and uh, have a few recurring members and we've had a lot of fun doing it. Andrew, have you do you have any ambitious uh ambitious uh pb goals any any running goals that you can share with us or are you are you in a sad state of affairs like i am i i was for a while i was i was trying to get in shape for a a 5k as well i think my time was going to be a lot slower than alex's um I did run one a little while ago i mean i'm almost like too embarrassed to to say the time i feel like i used to 
be able to cruise through it. But let's just say I didn't break 17 minutes. So <laughs> things makes, are still, makes me still feel rough better. out here. That, make, that makes me feel better about my deplorable yeah. situation. I have, yeah. I did build, I actually built a cross country trail. Uh, it's, I would describe it as like a wood chip trail uh, out in the country. I built one with my hand, my, my wife and I and her, her, her dad, my father-in-law with a tractor and several days of manual labor. We built a really nice wood chip trail. It's about 500 meters. I'm going to one day have you guys up and other friends up to to run it and to throw down the course record on it. Uh, and we're going to put up a post at the start finish of the trail that says like what each person's time is on it. That's my. So, but nice. inst- instead of running, I built a trail to run on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This was a podcast with Alex Sear, Andrew Crookshank, and Paul Bunyan. Thank you very much for <laughs> tuning in. <laughs> Living off the land. All righty. Um, running around Walden's Pond with my boy. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, good luck, Alex. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>